Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And guess what? I have Kira with me again this week. Hey Kira. Hey Tina. Hey everybody. So we have some really good stories to talk to you about today. First of all, we want to talk to you about a news story that we found that it's kind of interesting because it's it's kind of like, you know, a lot of times the news stories are kind of negative, you know, just because anything that makes the news is typically going to be something negative. But in this case, it was kind of neat because this is about a family in uh, Springville who provided an RV for nurses to for a nurse to stay close to their family. And then when I got to kind of looking at, and this is in New York, when I when I got to kind of looking into the story, what it ends up being is that there's an entire program that's dedicated to this, where nurses, not just nurses, it's actually originally for doctors, but but they were allowing nurses to use this as well, but it's called RVs for MDs. It's on Facebook, and they it's just a, a service that's used to, prov- to kind of like match um, families who are maybe like a doctor who is having to work a lot at the hospital or nurses are having to work a lot at the hospital and they don't want to go basically risk their lives taking care of patients who have COVID-19. Then they kind of realize they've been exposed to the virus and then turn around and go home, you know, where they're risking infecting their family with it. So this service is for People who have RVs available, maybe they're just sitting in their driveway, they're not doing anything with them, and they're like, hey, this is literally a home on wheels that you could use, and they're donating their their RVs to doctors and nurses who need them, and then they're going and staying in them instead of having to go home, which is kind of sad to me that you know you're not able to go home, but at the same time, I honestly have kind of struggled a little bit with the fact of I personally myself have not taken care of a COVID patient, but I've struggled struggled a little bit with like, what would I do? How would I feel if I was leaving the hospital and I knew 100% that I had just left a patient who had COVID-19 and they were on a ventilator or whatever the situation was, and here I am leaving and now I've got to go home to my family. I would struggle with that. And so what this is doing is kind of, while yes, it's taking away from the family, the, the nurse or the doctor being able to be with their family, it's also providing um, an option for them to be able to stay there, have a place to sleep, kind of get re-energized and then go back to work, unfortunately, at the front line. But at least it's an option. It's something that 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 I think I feel like people are all across the country are trying to find ways that they can help. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's making their best effort. I know I'm working with a doctor. Her children have had like childhood asthma, and she has been working very closely with COVID patients. So she has been staying in one of her rental apartments. I I just really respect the fact that she would be away from her family, not knowing how long this is actually going to last. I think that's really admirable because it must be hard completely changing your life like that. 
Oh, I agree 100%. I, I feel like I know for me, just a little bit that I've had to deal with as far as just knowing that I'm going to the hospital, potentially exposing myself to COVID-19 as, um, and then possibly coming home afterwards and doing every precaution I possibly can, taking my scrubs off immediately, uh, whatever I can do. But I still feel, um, I don't know, I feel vulnerable. I feel like I'm making my family vulnerable. It, it, it's scary. But at the same time, I know that someone has to take care of these people. So I just continue to do it every day. So I kind of like, I understand where this is coming from. One day, I'm I'm sure, I, I mean, I would assume that at some point, I'm going to have to be faced with this reality that I'm going to leave the hospital knowing that I just took care of a patient who has COVID-19. And I'm going to have to be faced with the option of like, do I go home or what am I, what are the alternatives? And it's just, it's really scary. It's really nice that these people have stepped up and someone has come up with the idea to like, hey, there's got to be people all over the country who have RVs that are just sitting in their driveways, not being used. And then people are just generously offering them. And that's not, that's no small thing. I mean, you're talking about offering probably potentially, you know, tens of thousands of dollars um, worth of property. You're, you know, many of these things are like thirty thousand, forty thousand, fifty thousand, hundred thousand dollars for these things that are that they use to for their vacation. And now they're offering it to someone that's a complete stranger to come and live live in there. You know, just live in the in the RV. That's no small thing in and of itself. So I feel like these people need to be commended for, you know, being willing to make the sacrifice. Yeah, for sure. It's incredibly generous of them. It's some people can say, well, I mean, if you have that, that's not it's not like it's your house. It's not but the thing is, you invest all this money into something like that and then you're turning it over to total strangers and you're Hoping that they're going to be good to it. You're hoping, you're hoping that they're going to treat it like you would treat your own property. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but you're just kind of taking that risk. So I appreciate these people for doing that. I really do. I feel like there's so many people all across the world, all across the country who are just doing whatever they can to help. And I see these people just tirelessly working and sewing and doing things. I can't do that. I'm not a good, I'm not good at sewing. Like I use the liquids <laughs> if I have to do anything because I'm not good. So I feel like these people who are really talented that I'm so thankful for them. I appreciate you guys so much. So I guess that's our news story. We appreciate you guys for offering up your RVs for people, for doctors and nurses to be able to stay there. And so I guess we can get into our bad, bad nurse story. This is a sort of like a bad doctor story. It's a, it's a different story. There's no doubt about that. I won't give it away at the beginning. You'll know by the time we kind of get to, <laughs> into this story why it's so different. But we can just start out kind of like at the beginning. This is really insane. Some of these details are just, it's just unbelievable. So this is the story of Monica Burgett, who is a, quote, infectious disease doctor. So we deal with some infectious disease doctors where we work right here. And they're really, really good at what they do. I mean, 
they come in, it's they're they're the sort of people who like a patient has been diagnosed with sepsis or they've been diagnosed with, you know, maybe they've got some really strange like pneumonia or something and all the different antibiotics have been tried and nothing seems to be working. And all of a sudden like, hey, let's consult infectious disease. Next thing you know, they kind of swoop in and do their magic and they, they just, they know things. That's why they are experts in their field. Right. I'm always kind of thinking, why didn't we do this sooner? I know. And the thing is, they are experts in their field. There aren't a lot of them. That That's a problem, really, when you come to think about it. People in the medical field, there aren't a lot of different doctors in all these different medical professions. So you do have to utilize your resources. It's kind of sparingly, unfortunately. And you don't want to, you don't want to just throw money at every single patient, you know, because sometimes it is possible to treat some of these infections with broad spectrum antibiotics and it just clears it right up and everything's fine. Like they had a UTI or they had pneumonia or whatever and you were able to clear it up. But sometimes you do those and it's not working. Mm-hmm. So then you consult infectious disease. Next thing you know, here they come. And they're, it's, I'm so impressed with them because like they know what's up, you know, when it comes to these very specific bacteria, the very specific viruses. And so it's just amazing. I, I, I love it when, when you think about, I mean, like everybody has their place. People, there are more general practitioners and then there's more specific practitioners who like the more general practitioners, like they're more of like, they understand the big picture. They understand the patient, you know, they're dealing with the patient on a big level. They're trying to figure out what's going on. And as time goes on, they have to drill down and figure out who maybe they, if they're not able to treat them, they got to figure out who maybe is best to be able to help them. So like everybody in that whole process is so important, you know, to the whole, in the grand scheme of things, every single person, every single provider is so important. So I just think of like the infectious disease person who like comes in and is able to like target a specific problem. And it's like, nope, this is what we need What we need to do. And now this person who's been sitting there with pneumonia, all of a sudden it just like clears up. Right. I really like from my short experience, like it comes, like they'll come in and it's mostly just like not even their physical assessment, but just like history taking, mm-hmm. like where have you traveled or what have you been up to? And it's like the most random thing yeah. that they find and it's completely treatable. Absolutely. I remember seeing uh, at different times working in the hospital. I always love to go back if I have time. I love to go back and look at the history and physical and look at all the different progress notes. Sometimes we have time to do that. Sometimes we don't have time to do that. But when I have time to do that, if I have a time where I'm like, everything is caught up, everybody has their meds, everything is done, that's what I'm doing. I'm going into progress notes. and I'm like looking like, what's going on with this person? I want to know where where did this start? How did this start? What's this person's history? What are all these different specialists? saying about this person. And what's interesting is you, whenever the infectious disease doctor is consulted in a case like this, I love it. Like I, I can remember reading about patients who were maybe, maybe they were a farmer 
on, uh, and they, like they had been a farmer for years and they had had a pond. And so what they, they literally put in there, they're so detailed in their notes and they're like, you know, patient has been a farmer for, you know, for 30 years. And so they're inhaling, what are they doing? They're inhaling different toxins in the air. They're exposed to different bacteria that other people who are maybe live in the city or maybe who aren't farmers don't live around ponds, don't live around where cows are defecating. And, you know, I mean, like there's so many different bacteria on a farm that other people are never exposed to. They're very specific to farmers. That infectious disease doctor knows that. Mm-hmm. So they see, a, this is where, and I'll tell you guys, you know, when you're the nurse taking that patient's information when they first come in, this is where that's so important. You get that history and physical and you're going through and you're doing the nursing history and you it's think it's stupid. stupid. Yes, that's one thing. <laughs> like ugh, of all, like when somebody's admitted and they, I have all these tasks I need to do, I need to get labs, I need to do my assessment, I need to get them settled. Mm-hmm. Like the last thing I want to do is a bunch of paperwork, but it really <laughs> is like so important for the bigger picture that I really do make sure I sit down and take the time with them and just kind of see like what they've been up to. Cause that if we don't know what's going on, that could really be a big clue. That's the thing. You know, a lot of people don't realize that you're asking these questions for a reason. There's a reason that from the, from the beginning, someone decided like, Hey, the nurse needs to ask these questions. These doctors, do you think these doctors have the time to go back and ask all of these questions? They're so busy. They're just like you. They have so, so many patients a lot of times they have more patients than they have time to take care of them. They're relying on you to take a thorough, a thorough examination, a thorough history. So when you're answering those questions, it is very important to answer them as accurate as accurately as you possibly can. Do you have family there that you can ask? Is the patient coherent and able to answer questions appropriately? If they are, yeah, it may seem like you're asking questions that are so invasive and so intrusive, but explain to the patient. Just say, hey, I know this probably seems like a lot, like I'm asking things that are irrelevant, but I can assure you they're not. It's very important that I know whether or not your mother or father had cancer, whether or not your mother or father suffered from liver disease. Because if I know that, if the doctor knows that really, the doctor will take this information and say, oh, maybe I need to be focusing in this direction. That hospitalist has a lot of things to consider, has a lot of patients. If you help them narrow that down, that is huge for them. They can be like, oh, wait, there's a family history of lung cancer. Maybe I need to be going this direction. Whatever. Take it seriously. It's part of your job. Don't just blow it off as like another thing that I have to do. Think about what you're doing. I know it's a lot, and many times, many of us um, as nurses, we have more patients that we have, you know, than we have time to do all of these things. Um, if you have, if you work at a, a facility where you have a team leader, let the team leader do the admission history. Don't just scroll through that and think, oh, I'll just knock it out. If you don't feel like you can give the time that you need to give to that admission history, 
Let the team leader do it, whatever you need to do, but don't just blow it off. It's sometimes it's really important. So I say all that because this person, Monica Burgett, was saying that she was an infectious disease doctor. And some people may look at that and be like, infectious disease, like that's just some specialty. Like that's not, if it doesn't have to do with an infectious disease, maybe it's not something that you'd have to worry about. So keep that in mind. Monica Burgett, she was married to Jonathan Burgett. They had three children. They lived in Texas. Their youngest child, JB, was born prematurely at 25 weeks gestation. Okay, that's really, oh my gosh. When I think about, like, if you think about it, 20 weeks is usually when they kind of, like, can tell the um, gender. But that's still really early in the process. Like, they're barely showing. They're, like, five months along. They're just kind of, like, real early. Okay, five weeks after that point. That's what we're talking about. That's crazy. That's so, so young. So JB spent the first 100 days of his life in the neonatal intensive care unit. That's the NICU, as we would call it. Um, In late 2015, Miss Burgett and JB, he was three by this time. They moved to Cincinnati because Miss Burgett was seeking medical care at Cincinnati Children's Medical Center because... JB had a genetic disorder, which is called neurofibromatosis, or it's also referred to as NF1. So NF1 is a genetic disorder. It causes an accumulation of proteins or benign tumor-like growths in various parts of the body. So, I mean, this is something that I actually know someone. Actually, I know a couple of people have had this. So this I mean, I know it's rare, but at the same time, for me to have known two different incidents, like two completely separate different families who've dealt with children with this, I I don't know that it's that rare, really. Um, I know it's scary. It's very scary sounding. I mean, if I had my child who was three years old taking him to the doctor, all of a sudden they're like, hey, they have this neurofibromatosis. They have these benign tumors. I don't care how common you say it is or how, you know, benign it is. It sounds terrible and I would be scared to death. While they were living in Texas, JB had a growth on the roof of his mouth that caused him pain. It caused him difficulty eating and swallowing. And in order to alleviate those symptoms, some of the medical providers that they were seeing at the time inserted a feeding tube into his stomach. So JB also has... Chiari malformation syndrome, which is a condition where the base of the brain connected to the spinal cord and it sits too low and enters into the spinal cord. So the condition can cause a compression of nerves and can limit cognitive function and cause pain. But JV, JB did not suffer any actual effects from that malformation. So, I mean, that's kind of interesting because there's obviously a lot going on here with this little guy. He's he's premature. He's got some sort of disorder that causes these benign tumors. He's got this other thing that's different, you know, like, you know, the malformation of the spinal cord or whatever. And so as a provider, you think, of, like, here's this mom bringing the baby in. You would, without knowing anything else, you would be thinking, oh, wow, you know, like, what's going on with this baby. And so anything that the mom is telling you, 
I guess you'd take it seriously. I mean, would you not take it seriously? I mean, yeah, especially if you were thinking that she is like a medical doctor, you're really going to respect the mom's opinion. And I feel like as a doctor, you'd really trust her judgment on what symptoms he was showing. And there's just kind of like a fuzziness of where the line is drawn. I think it's important for the doctor caring for the patient to respect the family member's opinion because we're, you know, we're providing patient-centered care and we need to make sure they're an advocate. But it, it just, it gets complicated if the doctor who's a family member doesn't agree with the doctor who's actually providing care and ugh, it just opens up all of these other problems. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, that's really what's going on here. That's what's being called into question because this woman has been lying the entire time. <laughs> Literally for like 11 years, probably even longer. <laughs> Truth be told, she isn't a doctor and mm-hmm. she's been lying. And what's most crazy, in my opinion, is that her husband, who she's been married to for 11 years, thought that she was a doctor this entire time. And after he found out that she lied, he still stayed with her. Like, I'm not here to judge anybody, but I'm just like, what? That's a that's a bold lie. It's so it's so hard for me to understand. I mean, are you kidding me? There's no way this is this can't be true. Like it it just blew my mind that they were married for so long. But then again, I, a lot of times I like to put myself in into the position of the people who are like the perpetrators. Like I like to. Like think how how they do this? How what were in the world were they thinking when they when this happened? Because this seems like a per- perfectly reasonable person. It's not like I mean I get it if somebody's like a total psycho, like somebody's a total psycho. They just love they're just sadistic. Like I don't even want I don't even care how they think whatever you know. But like this seems like a completely perfectly normal person. She seems reasonable. She seems rational when you look at her and watch her in in interviews. And I'm just like, how? I guess I'm thinking like maybe she starts out with her husband saying one thing. And then at some point, she just like never can come up with the answer for why she did it. Like there, it never, like when they first met, she's like, yeah, I'm a doctor, you know, I'm I'm an infectious disease, disease doctor. Then they end up getting married. And then she's just probably thinking in her mind, well, I'll probably tell him at some point, but she never, she never gets <laughs> Just throw that on the back burner, oh what I'm doing with my entire life. I just don't even know how this happens, but I always like to try to give the bit, uh, give people the benefit of the doubt, and sometimes it gets really hard in these situations. <laughs> I mean, watching the interviews, it is crazy because she does seem just like a mom who's trying to get the best care for her child, but it's like there has to be some mental health issues, in yeah. my opinion, because it's just like she believed, it's like she made herself believe that her lies were reality, yeah. and it's kind of like freaky to watch how that could happen. The thing is, I do think, think about these doctors. Okay. In her mind, she's not saying she's a pediatrician. She's not saying, hey, I'm giving you the symptoms that I'm seeing or the 
the things I'm seeing at home. I'm not giving you those from the standpoint of like an expert, like as a medical doctor. But at the same time, those doctors who are sitting there listening to her, they ex- they know she's a, they think they know she's a medical doctor. I can't imagine that they would not that that would not play into you know their decision when it comes to because I know when I sometimes when I talk to people, I talk to family members. There's some family members that are completely oblivious as to what's going on. You know these people, and it's fine. I, I don't expect people to know everything that's going on. But when I'm trying to talk to them, I'm just like, I try to dumb everything down when I'm talking to them. I try to explain it on a kind of kindergarten level because I don't expect them to understand everything that I'm saying. Then I talk to people who seem like they know what they're, what's going on. You know, they... They, whether they've researched the information or they are medical in some way, they seem like they know what's going on. And I feel like I can kind of talk at a little bit higher level with them. And then I will. I almost like see what I can get away with with people sometimes. I'm like, okay, I'll give you a little information. See if you feel like, if I feel like you understand it. If I feel like you understand it, I might just be like, okay, I can kind of talk like this with this person. Because you, I mean, the thing is you, that's the problem when you're dealing with family, you're dealing with patients, you're trying to educate them. As a nurse, you kind of have to know where are they? And I feel like that's how these doctors were. They were like, well, where is this mom as a as a mom? But she's also a doctor. So she, on some level, understands sort of what's going on. And so she understands symptoms. She understands what to be looking for. She's not going to over-exaggerate things, you know? I mean, so you could imagine, like, being one of the doctors for JB, like, finding mm-hmm. out about that lie. You would probably just be shocked and be like, um, what else is she lying about? Like, yes. is this woman, is, does she have some mental disorders? Like, what's going on? Has she been lying about this kid's symptoms? Because that is just not normal to lie about something like that. I mean, there is a medical diagnosis called Munchausen's by proxy. It is a medical diagnosis. It's, it, it is something that uh, providers use to diagnose someone who they have a, someone who's in their care. Usually it's a, a child. It can be just someone that they're caring for, but usually it's a child. And so they get attention because the child is sick and then it somehow feeds some need that they have. And then because they're getting attention because the child's having symptoms, then they maybe start creating symptoms and they may not even be realizing they're th- that they're doing it at, per- in, um, at first. Maybe they're embellishing, exaggerating symptoms. And before you know it, they're creating them. You know, they're giving them, you know, salt in their diet, extra salt in their diet, whatever they need to do to try to cause the child or their their person that they're caring for to exhibit um, exhibit symptoms so that they have a reason to go to the doctor and a reason to um, continue this care because they're getting all this attention. They can go on Facebook and be like, oh my gosh, this person's sick or my son or my daughter, whatever. And that's Munchausen's by proxy. It's been going on for a long time. And that's 
where at this point, once a doctor realizes, wait a minute, you're not really a doctor? Then all like it's like the floodgates open and they're like, wait, <laughs> what are the possibilities here? If you're not really a doctor, then what's going on? Is this patient even sick? Like, I don't even know what to believe anymore. The sources are unclear about how exactly um, her lie of being a doctor was revealed. One article mentions that she was part of a Facebook group that was for moms who were doctors. One of the actual doctors on the page heard her story and helped her set up a GoFundMe page for medical expenses. And so then she started, that that doctor started noticing that the woman and the kid's symptoms were kind of fishy. And so the truth started coming out, you know, like slowly. But I, I definitely can can see why this, her husband or the, the, the father of these children would have been at least trying to keep things together, like holding it together, even though it just seems impossible. It's like, what in the world? They've been, she's been lying to him the entire time. Like she's literally not the person he thought she was. Like she is not the entire time they've known each other. Everything is a lie. I, I don't know how he was so strong that he could have just been like, well, I'm just going to stick in here. You know, like, you know, that's crazy. But he stayed with her. So she took JB for a treatment at um, hospitals in da- uh, Houston, Dallas, and Austin before she brought him to Cincinnati, finally. And uh, medical records show that she was actually investigated for child abuse while in Austin, but she was never charged. Doctors recall feeling like she wanted unnecessary tests and treatments. So I guess, you know, kind of here's here's the thing. You have this baby born prematurely. So you're like, okay, there's definitely something, you know, like not everything is going to be 100% normal, like what a nine-month gestation baby, a 40-week gestation baby is going to be. So then it's going to probably be really hard for medical professionals and providers following this case to determine when it's something that's embellished from the mother who just wants attention versus something that's legitimate because he obviously had deficits. He obviously had things, you know? It's got to be really hard for them, and I I can just really feel for them. It's it's just an impossible situation, you know, to be in as a medical provider. I can't even imagine. There's a reason why. Like I once I started working at the hospital and I saw what like the nurse practitioners do. I 100% knew that is not what I wanted to do. Like it's just so far out of the realm of what I want to do, and I I see the responsibility. Ability to that they have, and I think about these doctors and what you know the responsibility they have, and like they have to look at this this mother. Are we really expecting them to like judge her straight up, judge her, and just say, you know, they didn't know she wasn't a medical doctor. They did not know that. Once they found that out, okay, yeah, then they were like, whoa, something's off. But up until that point, they did not know that, and. I just don't, I can't say that I blame them for all the stuff that happened. But it is concerning that she was investigated for child abuse. Um, she wasn't charged. And because of his NF, he did have a growth inside of his mouth. 
Um, and she insisted that it was causing him severe and chronic pain. So based on his her description of his pain, pediatricians in Cincinnati provided oxycodone and methadone. It just, I don't even understand that. I mean, I know that I understand pediatrics. Okay, I get it. I, I mean, we don't deal with babies. But at the same time, come on, methadone? What the heck? Like this stuff, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I shouldn't question it since I don't know about it, but it, man, does it seem crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't find any sources that gave more details as to like her describing what kind of symptoms he was having. Mm-hmm. It just seemed a little extreme. He did get a feeding tube placed. Uh, doctors think that he would not have needed that feeding tube if she had not been exaggerating or lying about his symptoms. So they they place the feeding tube, and then in retrospect, they look at the situation and they go, well, they probably would not have placed that feeding tube had the doctors not been under the impression that she was a doctor. Therefore, taking everything that she said, you know, like 100% seriously, like, well, I don't know what else to do. It, during the trial... The pediatrician was asked, if you had known then what you know now, would you have prescribed those medications? And Dr. Alexandra Zabova, who was the pediatrician who was on trial or who was testifying at the time, said, no, I would not. Since JB has been taken away from his mom, he has not needed any pain medications. And to me, that's like the number one piece of evidence. I mean... You have all these questions. All this stuff is like really suspicious. You don't know, like you don't want to accuse someone. She said she's a medical doctor. Then she, you find like she's not. So she clearly is not above lying about something like this. She claims like, well, I felt like, you know, my son needed help. So I felt like I had no other choice but to try, you know, like basically use her quote doctor status to get things done for him because she was so worried about him. You know, like... She started, like, she meets her husband. She's like, oh, I'm a doctor. She lies in this situation. Like, have any of you ever lied to, a like, just somebody who you don't know? And you're just like, hey, whatever. You know, you tell them, like, I'm a doctor. You're whatever. Then imagine that situation. And that person literally, like, one thing leads to another. And they become the person who's, in, you know, like, asks you to marry them. I would think that most of us would at some point real soon after, you know, that initial introduction, you would be like, look, I know I told you this, but I got to come clean. For whatever reason, she could not bring herself to to do that. I mean, seriously, who among us has not at some point, you know, I mean, like, Total little white lie. Like, like I'm so good at inserting IVs. You have no idea. Yes, of course. Like You have to, at some point, you have to be able to do that. You're a brand new nurse on a floor. And the person's looking right at you going, have you ever done this before? Are you going to look at him and go, no. <laughs> I'm like, absolutely. I've done this a hundred times. I mean, you have to, You look like, not that you're lying, but you're just like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm good. Like I've been a nurse forever. Like you just kind of like go with the flow, and you just like have this confidence. You have to exude that in order to make your 
your patient more comfortable. Yeah, literally faking it till I make it. Yes, I you have to fake it. Till a line from my preceptor where I'm just like, if anyone is ever like, oh, honey, like, how long have you been a nurse? And I'm just like, wow, they totally know that I am like a child. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, this ain't my first rodeo. That's always my response. That's what my preceptor says. This ain't my first rodeo. I love that. The healthiest thing we can do is just respect each other wherever we are in our journey. And we can all learn from each other, no matter what kind of nursing we did before, no matter if we're the new grad, if we're the seasoned nurse, if we are a nurse maybe that has worked for a while on a different in a different hospital and now we're at a new hospital or whatever. Like for me, I you know was on PCU, now I'm in CVICU. It's a totally different experience. So, you know, like everybody respect each other. It's we all have something to teach each other all the time. Like I, I totally believe that we just need to keep an open mind, always be, you know, keep communication open and talking to each other about these things. So the thing is like, I, I love this because we always get off in these tangents and it's so important. And like, I know like the new grads and the nursing students, they love these conversations because when they messaged me, they're always like, oh my gosh, it feels like I'm in like at the, like in the break room listening to you guys talk and they love it. So I, I love these kind of conversations because I know that there's someone out there listening who is just really enjoying just kind of like getting the behind the scenes kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and I love that because I think I would have enjoyed having that before I became a nurse. But the thing is in this particular story, they're like the story is just endless. The lies are endless. There's probably a lot more lies than that this particular woman, this mom, doesn't even remember because she has gotten herself so entangled in all these lies that so she just cannot even get out of this nasty web that she's weaved. So she just effortlessly, like at one point when she took JB to Cincinnati. She shaved his head. She shaved his eyebrows. Basically, I mean, if you think, like, why else would you do that? Why would you shave someone's head and their eyebrows and, like, take pictures of them and put them on Facebook? Why would you do that? I mean, and this is on a a GoFundMe account. It's, I don't know. Like, I always try to give people the benefit of the doubt, but I cannot imagine. Now, she says that she shaved, she didn't actually shave his eyebrows. Like he started pulling out his eyebrows and then she sort of like shaved them afterwards to even them out, like, because he was pulling them out. It's all just kind of fishy. Yeah. Doesn't really line up. It just seemed like the perfect way to make mm-hmm. it look like, oh, you're dealing with a child who has cancer yes. and you need help. Because even he though had- he, they had insurance that was covering like nine yeah so she's got insurance so she's continuing to take him to the doctor she's in this facebook group with all these other doctors who are also moms one of them decides to sign up a a gofundme account so she what puts like shaves her son's head and eyebrows and then gives the picture for the gofundme i mean come on this is ridiculous i'm i mean even if i'm trying to give somebody the benefit of the doubt it's just ridiculous um, 
So after all the fraud, all the abuse, she actually was put on five years probation. She did have to pay back the GoFundMe account. She had mandatory psychotherapy that she had to go to. Some sources are saying that she had Munchausen's by proxy. We talked about that. I don't know. I don't even know how they go about, you know, diagnosing that. Like, is someone just literally, like, sadistic and, like, they don't even care about their child? All they care about is, like, get, trying to get money for them or attention. Where where does it become, where does it go from being a medical condition or a mental condition, like Munchausen's by proxy, into being, like, just plain of like, I'm a bad person and I don't care anything about my child and I'm just selfish and I just want the attention. Well, I guess that's, that pretty much wraps it up for our bad nurse story. I mean, she's, whatever happens to her, it's just awful for the poor child. At least he is in a situation now where, you know, he's being cared for and he seems to be thriving, fortunately for him. So for a good nurse story, you know, okay, this is a little different because I had a listener, I'm not going to say her name because she did ask that I not mention her name, but thank you for our listener that messaged me about this story. This is actually a story, it is, it's sad. I mean, sometimes our good nurse stories are sad and that's just because sometimes people sacrifice themselves in order to help someone else. And sometimes people are good. And then while they're just in the process of just living their life or just being a good person, something horrible happens to them. And that's the case um, for a good nurse story. So right up front, I just kind of want to kind of get the bad stuff out of the way because we do like to sort of end on a good note if at all possible, if at all possible for this podcast because, I mean, that's sort of the point, right? I mean, really the point is to kind of like get these stories out there, get the bad nurse stories out there, get the bad stories out there, let people know this is the sort of thing that can go on. Let's all be aware of it. Let's don't just pretend like it doesn't happen. But then also get the good stories out there, like this, these are things that are happening. These are good things people are doing. In this particular case, um, it's, I mean, it is sad, but I really appreciate my listener for um, sending me this message on Instagram. She said that one of her friend's mother was a nurse um, at a hospital where she actually was admitted to. So when she was in fourth grade, she broke her arm and she had to have surgery. So she, or she is in the hospital. And then one of her friends' mother was a nurse at that very hospital. So while she's there, while the our friend of the podcast is there as you know as a fourth grader, this friend's mom, who's a nurse there, comes to visit her. So um, now she comes there on her break, and we all know nurses don't get a whole lot of breaks. <laughs> So that's a pretty big sacrifice. I mean, really. No, they don't. They really don't. I mean, like, yes, we definitely want to promote on this podcast for people to take your breaks when you can. Definitely go to the bathroom. Take your lunch breaks. We don't we don't like to promote um the idea of nurses like sacrificing themselves and like not taking care of themselves because that's not ultimately that's not what's best for everyone concerned. But at the same time, I do know that, like, you know, to take your 
break to go see another patient in the hospital. I mean, I feel like that's awesome. So um, just a few weeks or months um, after this happened, after like she went to see her, you know, on the floor to just see how she's doing, kind of encourage her. She was killed by her husband who she was separated from. And that literally her, like her, just like this whole thing, like her coming there to see her. You can't imagine she's in fourth grade. Okay. She's what, maybe 10, maybe 11. She's broke her arm. She's in the hospital. And then this nurse from another floor comes along. She's like, Hey, I'm your friend's mom. She's coming to see you. Next thing you know, like a few weeks later, she, she's dead. And your friend's dad is the one accused of killing her. So it just made a huge impression on this girl. And she decided to become a nurse herself because of it. So years later, just like looking back on that, what a huge impression she had, she became a nurse. She's actually a peds nurse now because of the care and the comfort that she provided to her in her visit to her. And so I just thought that was really cool. It is cool. I love about nurses. We are people who are like normally feel truly called to be a nurse Mm -hmm. or have experienced something that just leads us that way when we would never expect to be led that way. Because I feel like a lot of people who become nurses, it's, it's unexpected like how much you just fall in love with it. It's true. It's so true. And the thing is like for this particular woman... Melissa Barnhill, she, like, it's obvious that her life was about helping others. And she she knew that this person was, you know, on in the hospital somewhere. And so on her break, she went to see this person, her daughter's friend. Uh, she had a reputation for just being a wonderful person. She had a reputation for being an amazing nurse, a wonderful person. And so when this happened, everyone was shocked, like, what happened. And if the thing is, it's just like so, so many stories that we see over and over and over again on this podcast where people are in a relationship, they're trying to separate, trying to, you know, one person is trying to separate from the other. The other person is like not having it. That's the situation here. The, the you know, her father, this um, Melissa Barnhill's husband, Kyle Barnhill was like, not happy that everything was going on. And he just literally drove by the house one night and shot through the window and killed her right in front of her daughter. I mean, it's the saddest thing. At the same time, I feel like this woman, Melissa Barnhill, has just the impression that she left on this earth is just huge. None of us are going to get out of this earth alive. Okay, we're all here for a limited amount of time. Melissa was here for maybe a little shorter than average, but we're all going to be leaving here at some point. She made a huge impression because just the short time that she spent on this earth, she influenced other people to be the best people that they could possibly be. And that's what I love about this story. Like, yes, she her life ended, you know, shorter than what was expected. But what did she do with the limited time that she had? And so I just love that. 
appreciate her so much. I love stories like this. It's sad. I know it's, you know, I'm always like, oh, we we end with an uplifting story. And then, you know, a story like this comes along and I'm like, uh, <laughs> it's not going to be necessarily uplifting. But at the same time, her story deserves to be told. And I want to tell her story, even though it's not necessarily the happiest story in the world. She deserves to have her story told. She was a good nurse, and I'm really proud of her, and I'm proud of all of you guys who are listening, who are wonderful nurses. I love the nursing profession, and I love um, just all the people that I work with at the hospital, the people that I interact with on Facebook, and I appreciate you guys so much. So I guess that ends this episode. What do you think, Kara? Yes, that'll do it. You guys can find us on Instagram at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse or on Facebook at GMBN Podcast. And I would love for you guys to message me if you have a story, just like this nurse had, um, a story for me, a nursing student actually um, had a story for me. You guys send me your messages. I love to hear from you. Even if I don't respond right away, I try to respond to everyone. If I don't, I really am sorry. I do get a lot of messages. It's not always easy to respond back to everyone. If for some reason you message me and you don't hear from me, just send me another message. I try really hard to respond to everyone. So if you haven't heard back from me, send me another message. I guarantee you're going to hear back from me because I work really diligently at that. And I would love to hear from you and appreciate your support. And I also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. (laughs) 